Welcome to the Theology on Tap Chattanooga podcast. In each episode, we feature a different lecture given by a writer, scholar, or public intellectual. Each of these talks explores the intersection between theology and culture, and how theology can help better guide us toward the common good of society. These talks are given live at our monthly Theology on Tap events at the Camp House in Chattanooga, Tennessee. For more information and to find out when our next live event is, check out our Facebook page at facebook.com backslash Theology on Tap Chattanooga. Now, here is this week's episode. We hope you enjoy listening. All right, good evening, everybody. Welcome to Theology on Tap, summer edition. (laughs) Uh, Beauty of wireless microphones. Um, My name is Matt Busby. I'm one of the pastors here at uh, Mission Chattanooga. I'm director of the Camp House and um, help run Theology on Tap and facilitate getting great speakers here to uh, talk about different issues that intersect with faith and culture. Uh, And so I know a lot of you have actually been to some of the series that we've done this spring. We were um, started what looks like it's going to be a partnership with Richmond Graduate University to talk about theology and trauma on an annual basis. So I'm pretty excited if you made it to those two talks that we did with Dr. Sam Youngs and Dr. Preston Hill. Um, I think that's something we're going to keep going on an annual basis. So I'm pretty excited about that. Um, But tonight is our uh, final one of the semester. We don't typically, I've already think I've pre-gamed this with everybody in the room, we don't typically do summer theology on taps when there's no college in session, um, only because of this reason, it, it ends up being really low attendance, because it's summertime, right? Um, so, but this is our first one, so congratulations, um, Reverend Stacy. this is our first uh, ever summer theology on tap, and we are excited for it. Um, so tonight's event, we have been trying to put together for over uh, a year, have we been talking for a year now? to try and get a theology on tap about Christianity and the death penalty. And um, it has consistently been put off because of COVID uh, multiple times. Every time we, we want to talk about this topic, there seems to be a uh, spike. And uh, it's just made it really hard to bring um, Stacy Rector down from Nashville. Uh, but tonight's event is uh, talking who will cast the first stone, Christianity and the death penalty. And I think we're going to be specifically talking about Tennessee, uh, which I'm excited about, and the laws that we have in the books here in Tennessee. So Reverend Stacy Rector is the executive director of Tennesseans for Alternatives to the Death Penalty, an organization working to, toward the end of the death penalty here in the state of Tennessee. Uh, she has served as the associate pastor of Second Presbyterian Church in Nashville and has served as, as the spiritual advisor for men and women on, or for men on death row. Please put your hands together for Reverend Stacy Rector. Now then, Um, there we go. Um, So we're going to watch a short film. It's about 15 minutes, and then I'm going to share more with you, and then we'll have our Q&A. Our organization uh, had this film made about uh, seven, eight years ago now. So some of the statistics and data are obviously outdated, and I will update you on that. But I just think it's so important to hear people who have been directly impacted by this issue share. Um, it's just much more impactful than me telling you. So that's what I hope you'll, you'll really tune into are the stories and the, the voices of the people who have been impacted. So we'll watch this. Um, I'll update you on some of the data, and then we'll go from there. Sound good? Okay. Whoops. Okay. 
do not see the death penalty or carrying out the death penalty as an asset for corrections. It is really a far cry from what most corrections professionals are about. Working as a prosecutor, you wonder, are we really applying the death penalty to the worst of the worst? Or are we applying it to the poorest of the poor? It's the ultimate penalty. It's a matter of life and death. That makes a capital case profoundly different from any other case. I'm much more strongly opposed to it than ever because the system, the capital punishment system, doesn't work. When you look at the amount of money we have to spend, we just put them in prison the rest of their lives. We would save millions and millions of dollars that we spend just for executing. I didn't turn against the death penalty overnight, but it was gradual, but I wanted to support it because I thought that Republicans, conservatives, that's what you did, uh, and that's not true. I know that we can do better than the death penalty. It's taking our eye off what we need to be focused on, which is the root causes of violent crime. I'm fighting against the death penalty because what happened to me has happened to hundreds of people in this country. As long as there is a death penalty, innocent people are going to be executed, bottom line. vast majority of defendants who are sitting on death row were unable to hire their own lawyer at the time of their trial. We see people who are poor and unable to hire adequate defense, disproportionately affected by the death penalty. When you think of justice, it ought to be applied across the board. But when you see the death penalty applied to people who live in poverty, who don't have the resources, people who may be struggling with uh, mental health issues, then it affects all of us. In my experience, every single inmate that I've represented has suffered from a diagnosed mental disorder. We see geography impacting this system. In the state of Tennessee, nearly 40% of our death row here comes from one county. That's Shelby County. When half of the counties in the state of Tennessee have never even sent anyone to death row. And we know within the black community uh, that there are a lot of people who have been on death row, who have been wrongly convicted. If it's biased against racial minorities, if it's biased against the poor, to the extent that it's not administered fairly, then I have a, a problem with that on constitutional grounds. I'm opposed to the death penalty because what happens if we make a mistake? To date, 143 people have been released from death rows across this country when evidence of their innocence came to light. In Tennessee, we've had four people who have been wrongfully convicted. If we look at innocent people that may have been wrongfully convicted, it's hard to say that's justice. For roughly every 10 executions we've had, we've had to release someone because we got it wrong. And those are the people that we figured out in time. If nothing else, I think that uh, people should be against the death penalty based on the fact that you know it's going to kill innocent people. As long as you have it, it's going to kill innocent people. 
because it's a human institution, mistakes are gonna be made. And when you are talking about something like death, like taking a human life, you have to be 100% accurate. I was wrongly convicted of murder and sentenced to death for a crime in a city that I had never been to. A grocery store only was killed during an attempted robbery. The crime was committed in 1983 in Memphis, Tennessee. I was born and raised in the city of St. Louis, Missouri, and uh, had never even been in the state of Tennessee until I was actually brought to Memphis in handcuffs and put on trial for this crime two years after it happened. On the day the crime happened, we was up with my mom just uh, celebrating her birthday, so that's where I was in St. Louis at the time. It was never explained how and why I became a suspect. When I was arrested and brought to uh, Memphis to stand trial, I didn't believe that I would even be convicted of the, a trial, even though that I was sitting as a young black male before an all-white jury being accused of killing a white uh, store owner. In the South, I still didn't believe that I would uh, be convicted for a crime and commit. They offered me a 25-year sentence, and I refused to take the 25-year sentence because I wasn't going to plead guilty to a crime that I hadn't committed. It took the jury less than two hours to come back with this uh, guilty verdict. The same jury was the ones that decided my sentence. It took them even less time to come back with this verdict of, you know, wanting to uh, put me to death. If these attorneys had not been on my case, I would probably not be sitting there right now. I would probably be, probably would have been executed or, or certainly slated to be executed. It took a lot of good people on my behalf that actually made that work, especially my wife. I sit here despite the system, not because the system actually works. I mean, they wanted to execute, murder me, basically. Yeah, so yeah, I, I don't have no doubt about that. This notion that the death penalty is a deterrent to crime simply is not borne out by the research. I don't consider the death penalty to be a deterrent to crime, and I don't think there's research that supports that it does. States that utilize the death penalty with frequency do not have lower murder rates, and in fact, there are states without the death penalty whose murder rates are lower. Once I found out that it didn't deter crime, that was the last thing I held on to. And once I realized that, then I, I just couldn't support the death penalty anymore. Opposing the death penalty aligns perfectly with conservative principles. The main tenets of conservatism are pro-life policies, fiscal responsibility, and limited government. The death penalty is inconsistent with each of those. You run a risk of killing innocent people, so it's hard to say it's a pro-life policy. 
and it's far more expensive than life without parole, so it's not physically responsible. Giving the government the power to be able to kill U.S. citizens is not a form of limited government. We do a disservice to victims and to their families when we promise them that once the death penalty has taken place, that they will feel like they have had an experience of justice. When this legal process should bring them swift and sure justice, what we see is something that is far from swift and often far from sure. It's not unusual for the victim family members to be brought into the case multiple times over the course of 10, 20, or 30 years. It just re-traumatizes them each time this comes up. And these families could be given legal finality much quicker with the alternative sentences as opposed to waiting for 20, 25 years for a sentence that may never even be carried out. The death penalty system costs taxpayers millions more to maintain than a system with life or life without parole as the maximum punishment. It's so expensive when you go through the whole process of appeals and more appeals and more appeals. The cost of a capital case on the system is at least two or three times greater. You have multiple stages of review on direct appeal, state post-conviction, federal habeas litigation, which will take 10, 20, or 30 years. It's millions of dollars per case. These are dollars that we are not spending to support murder victims' family members on resources for our law enforcement. There are so many things that we need in this state that we know help to actually prevent violent crime. And yet, we spend millions and millions of dollars on a system that in our state has executed six people since 1960. My mother was an extremely outgoing person. She was an extrovert. She never met a stranger. More than anyone else, she was the greatest influence in my life. She had a normal, regular day in retirement of working at a soup kitchen. That was a normal day for her. And she had been at my um, rectory, and she left there. She was abducted at knife point by an escapee from a mental institution. He stabbed her in the throat and she died immediately. We uh, began a search. We came upon her car parked in the parking lot of the Union Mission. We opened the trunk and found her there. So we called the police, they put the yellow tape, and then it became a crime scene. The police kept saying there are no clues. When the man was apprehended, it was a month later. When he was arrested, we spoke against the death penalty, and then later we issued a formal statement to the district attorney asking that they not consider the death penalty. 
I'm more convinced that we do not need the death penalty after her murder. We said at her funeral, we believe in the miracle of forgiveness. It became a miracle in it that it brought us peace, that the person who lives inside of you no longer had to live there because he is forgiven. The thing that has inspired me to continue to be a part of those who are opposed to the death penalty have been those families who have had loved ones who have been killed, who found in their own spirits that need to, uh, to forgive. If people can somehow have that inner strength, then it ought to be somehow for those of us to have the faith to find alternatives to the death penalty. It's asking an awful lot of people to carry out the death penalty law. It is carrying out a state killing. As with any killing of a human being, it's really pins and needles kind of experience. I think it just takes its psychological and physical toll for those who are involved in it. Public opinion is changing about the death penalty. The death penalty support in this country is at a 40-year low. Over time, it is effectively going out of use because it doesn't work. And more people are opposing the death penalty every day, and more and more states don't have the death penalty. an effective way to deal with crime in our society. I don't think it's just. I don't think it's morally right. The death penalty needs to be abolished. It's not used frequently. It serves no purpose. It drains resources. It is traumatizing to all of the people who participate, including jurors, including judges, including prison personnel, including victim family members, including the defendant's family members, including the lawyers involved, it traumatizes all of them. Every day I talk to citizens across this state who are saying, I don't think this is the way we ought to go. And that gives me great hope that the day is coming when the death penalty will be repealed in Tennessee and will be repealed across this country. I've been released, but only after I've spent 28 years in prison, and 20 of those on death row. I'm fighting against the death penalty because what happened to me has happened to hundreds of people in this country. We never even the score. A thousand deaths would not even the score. The loss is so painful and so devastating, and killing doesn't even the score. It isn't an eye for an eye. So, it's a lot to unpack, I know. Um, 
I've seen that so many times, and every time I see it, I still it 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 touches me. Um, let's before we dive in, let's pause for a moment and open with prayer, and then we'll we'll begin. Loving God, we do give you thanks for the gift of life, for your spirit of creativity and creation that moves among us and that calls us to your way of love, your way of mercy, your way of forgiveness, even though it is sometimes very hard. We thank you for those here this evening for this opportunity to be together, to talk and listen and share. And we pray that you would open us to hear one another and to hear what you would have us to learn this night. In your holy name we pray, amen. So the way I like to do this, y'all, um, and I want to make sure we have plenty of time for Q&A at the end, um, but I, I kind of come at this from three perspectives. One is the faith perspective, obviously, the theological, biblical. One is the um, policy perspective, and one is the personal, okay? Um, and so let's start um, with the, the biblical um, faith perspective. Um, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to talk just a little bit about that and the personal, and then I'm going to really dig into the policy, but all of it is open for discussion, obviously. Um, and you all probably have had conversations about this issue or others with folks who, from a biblical perspective, maybe didn't see it the way that you did, and you can sort of get into the lobbing scriptures at each other like you're playing a bit of a tennis match. Um, and I have been there, done that many times. Um, but what... You know, there, there are certain texts that I find to be particularly helpful on this issue. I mean, certainly there are texts that you can quote back and forth that maybe uh, indicate biblical justification for the death penalty, others that maybe don't. Um, you know, for me, I really try to read the total of Scripture through the lens of the life of Jesus. And so that's kind of my lens to sort of interpret all of it. Um, and one of the texts that's been the most helpful to me is um, John's gospel, the story of the woman caught in adultery. Um, and I'm sure many of you are familiar with that story, but if not, I'll recap. Um, uh, a woman is caught in the act of adultery, which is a capital offense. Um, probably didn't, didn't happen that often where people were actually executed under that law, but the legal and religious authorities were within their right by the law to arrest this woman and bring her to Jesus. Now, her partner in crime is nowhere to be found, um, and that's probably a whole other topic we could have a whole other discussion about. But it's not unlike our current death penalty system, where you may have multiple people involved and only one ends up being charged and convicted and sentenced to death, right? So this woman is brought to Jesus. Um, they uh, tell him the charge against her, and um, as you all probably recall, he listens, um, and he says, you who are without sin, go ahead and cast the first stone. And then he bends down and is writing something, which we all, of course, want to know what was he writing on the ground. We don't know, but... Um, Eventually, no one's left but her. <laughs> Everybody eventually just leaves, and she's there alone, and he looks up, oh, 
um, did nobody condemn you? And no, no one. And he said, well, neither do I. Go and sin no more. And what I find really helpful with that story is that Jesus kind of reframes the issue. The issue does not seem to be for him, does this woman deserve to die? That doesn't seem to be his primary concern, right? According to the law, she does. She was caught in the act. She's not innocent, right? The legal authorities are completely within their rights by law to kill her. But that doesn't seem to be Jesus' primary concern, not whether or not she deserves to die. His primary concern seems to be whether or not those holding the stones deserve to kill her. That seems to be his primary concern. And I think we really have to think about this in terms of our current death penalty system. When in Tennessee, it's generally 30 years before someone is executed here. From the time they are convicted and sentenced to death to execution is 30 years plus. And so when we take this human being who's been sitting on death row for 30 years into the death chamber, shackled, hands and feet, strap them to a gurney or to the chair, when they are utterly defenseless, is that really about them at that point? Or is that about us at that point? And who we are choosing to be, right? And so for me, that, that text has been really, really helpful. Another thing that's been helpful is our Christian understanding of redemption and the power of redemption, the power of God's love through Christ to change us. Um, and we see that in the lives of many people who end up in prison and many who end up on death row. After years and years um, of being in prison, many who finally have an, an opportunity to be loved, <laughs> to learn about faith, to learn about um, who they can be as people who are valued and loved. And there's change that truly happens. And I think about our scripture, and I think about the stories of those who God used despite the things that they had done. And who, where would we be in our faith without these people? For example, Moses, right? You may recall Moses had murdered an Egyptian and was on the run when God called Moses to lead the people, the Hebrew people out of slavery. So he was a fugitive, basically, for murder, wanted. Um, King David, who I say could be a poster child for the death penalty, quite frankly. Um, there's one thing about King David that would keep him from getting the death penalty today. Does anybody have an idea what that is? Power and money. Right? But King David committed what I think you could call a sexual assault with Bathsheba and gets caught because she becomes pregnant. And to cover it up, sends her husband, who is a fine man, not even a Hebrew, fighting on behalf of Israel to the front line in order to ensure he is killed. So he basically put a hit out on him. He put a hit out on him. 
That's a capital offense all, all day long, right? And yet, David is called a man after God's own heart. Saul, not King Saul of, of David era, but Saul of the Paul era, <laughs> who, you may recall, is a zealot, a religious zealot, who believes Christianity is an ex, poses an existential threat to Judaism and is determined to snuff it out. And he holds the coats while the first Christian martyr, Stephen, is stoned to death. He holds the coats for the people stoning Stephen to death. And then he becomes Paul. He's changed. And we know the rest of the story, right? So, again, sometimes we don't think about these biblical characters in terms of kind of their full story and the way that God is able to use them because of who they are and despite who they are. And what the death penalty does is it assumes we have the timeline for when God can choose to use someone or where God can choose to use someone. Even if they have, even if they're going to be incarcerated, right? So these are just some of the theological pieces, and there's many more, and, and certainly we can talk about them, but I want to make sure I get to everything. Um, so I'm going to shift to the personal. Um, and basically just to say that, as, as Matt told you, I was a spiritual advisor for um, a man on death row. I have visited many people, but was a spiritual advisor for one man named Steve Henley, um, and met Steve as a young, was a young minister in Nashville, and there was a, a visitation program, visitation on death row, where you could go and volunteer and do an orientation and get matched with someone. That's what I did, and I was matched with him. He'd already been on death row 13 years at that point. This was in 1999, and I began visiting Steve and w went every other week for 10 years, um, and he became like my brother, honestly. He, you know, we were, he, he was very protective of me and um, old kind of, he was a farmer. Uh, uh, we had, you know, both grew up in Tennessee. We had lots in common in terms of kind of growing up on farms and, and that kind of life close to his grandparents. I was real close to my grandparents. Um, and uh, walked with him on that journey, and the state of Tennessee executed Steve, though he, he maintained his innocence to the last breath he took on that gurney. Um, that was in 2009. So he did 23 calendar years on death row before he was executed. Um, and I've seen the impact of that on his family um, to this day, on his adult children, his grandchildren, his elderly parents, um, what that has looked like. And I also see the pain of family members who have lost loved ones to murder. Um, and the, the immense damage that that does. Um, and then being caught in a system that tells you in very few instances, and I think we sometimes forget this, the majority of people who lose loved ones to homicide, the death penalty is not even on the table. 
So you're already talking about a value system, right, for life. Why do certain cases merit death and others don't? And it's, I'm going to talk about that in a minute. But families who are promised the death penalty as the way to bring, and I'm going to say closure, because I still haven't heard from any family what that means. Um, there's finality, legal finality. I'm not sure what closure is. Um, but they're told, this is, this is we're going to get justice, closure, put the word in there. And then, but, but it's going to take a while. Half the time, these death sentences are reversed, where the people who have gotten death maybe 10 years in, 15 years in, get a life sentence anyway, right? If you get to an execution, you're at looking at 30-plus years. Imagine being trapped in the worst trauma experience of your life for 30 years and having to relive it over and over and over. And what we could be doing instead to serve those families and to help them heal, as opposed to saying, just stay in your trauma for 35 years and then we'll kill the guy who hurt you. <laughs> right? You see what I mean? So those families have been incredibly um, instructive to me um, in, in thinking about how this system is failing everybody, right? So I'm going to shift now to the policy piece. I'm going to watch my time, y'all, because I can talk about this for a long, long time. But I want to kind of hit three areas, and that's fairness, cost, and accuracy, okay? So I would assume we could probably all agree that the color of your skin, the amount of money you have in your bank account, the county you live in, your mental health status should not be determinative of whether you live or die. But too often it is. Those factors are often much more determinative of who gets the death penalty than the crime itself. You heard in the film 40% come from Shelby County. 50% come from Shelby County today. Half of our state's death row comes from one county, which leads me to my next <laughs> area of concern, which is race. The history of Shelby County is in, it was in the top 25 counties for the most lynchings between like 1870 and 1950. That is not accidental that a county with that kind of lynching history continues to now utilize the death penalty in the way that it does. And when you look at maps, there's an excellent study on race and the death penalty. It's on a, a resource called Death Penalty Information Center. And they did a, a study about a year ago. And when you look at the maps and the overlay of where lynchings occurred, the majority of lynchings occurred in the United States, and where the majority of executions occur, it's terrifying. And you see that connection. We know that people of color are disproportionately represented on death row. Where we see the most racial bias is in the race of the victim of the crime. You're 75% 
75% of those who have been executed in this country were executed for killing white people, even though white people make up about half of all homicide victims. And bias in the jury pool, the jury selection. This is another real, real problem. Did y'all notice in Dume when he was talking about his trial, when he said, I was sentenced to death by an all-white jury in Memphis, Tennessee? Someone explained to me how a majority black city ends up with an all-white jury sending this young black man to death row. Well, it's not accidental. It's not accidental. And we just had a case in Nashville. A man, Abu Ali Abdurrahman, he's been, he was on death row 35 years, and there's all kinds of problems with his case. And I mean, I could spend two days just telling you about the problems with Abu's case. But one of the things his lawyers discovered was the prosecutor intentionally disqualified black jurors for false grounds because he black people on the jury. Black people are generally less likely to convict and to sentence people to death because of their own history with the legal system, right? And this prosecutor, and it's illegal to do this, right? But it's very hard to prove. Um, but they found the prosecutor's notes. It was very clear that very qualified black jurors were struck Less qualified white jurors were impaneled, um, and they were litigating this, and they were litigating this back in 2018. They then discovered this same prosecutor, who is still an ADA in our state, by the way, just a few years before, had spoken at a district attorney's conference and was teaching young DAs how to use race to seat jurors depending on who the, who the defendant was. If the defendant was la Latino, here's who you want because the, these people hate these people. And if the, you know, this is illegal. <laughs> and yet what we know is uh, Brian Stevenson of the Equal Justice Initiative of Just Mercy, if any of you saw the film or read the book, his group did a big study on this in 2012 and they found this, this happens sadly in the South not just in the South, but they looked at eight southern states, including ours, and found this was not uncommon. So we just see how race permeates the system. Um, and then, of course, mental health, intellectual disability. When someone has a severe mental illness, they are much less likely to cooperate with their attorney. They are likely to fire their attorney, try to represent themselves. They will not cooperate. They're paranoid. Jurors are scared of them. You know, there's all these things that you can see how certain individuals end up on death row. You heard about the cost, millions more to pursue the death penalty than the alternative sentence, which in Tennessee are life, which is a 51-year minimum before you're eligible for parole, and life without parole. And I would argue that even better alternatives where we could be spending dollars is on trauma-informed care, for our kids, kids living in communities disproportionately impacted by violence. Um, we see mental health, access to mental health care in this state, right? Um, particularly we're talking about our rural communities. Um, ACEs, I don't know if y'all are familiar with adverse childhood experiences, getting to these children, getting to these young 
families, moms, right? The, where we could be putting this money in evidence-based programs that we know actually help people to heal and not act out of their trauma. Which if you look at the histories, case histories of the people on death row, the trauma, it, it's almost unspeakable in some of the cases, right? And so rather than spending millions and millions and millions of dollars to try to litigate for 30 years to kill someone, we could be spending that money over here to try to get to these folks before something horrific happens. Um, so we know the costs financially are extreme, but the costs to us, I would say, as a society and to the people impacted are, are extreme. We're hearing more, obviously you have the family, the victim's family members. You have the defendant's family members, right, who live with a loved one on death row and what that is like in their communities um, for them and, and this hanging over them for years and years and years and years and years. Um, you have the correctional officers, which we don't think about very often, but we heard in the film from a former commissioner we're hearing more and more from wardens and from people who are on execution teams. Many of these executions today are not working. People are being tortured to death. We are asking state employees, in Tennessee we have one of some of the lowest paid correctional officers in the country, to go in to kill a person who has been there for generally 30 years, Oftentimes, death row is the safest unit in the prison. It's a bunch of old guys. The people we're executing today are people that were sentenced in the 80s and the 90s, many of whom would not get a death sentence if they were, if they were going to trial today. It just wouldn't happen. It's a different time. So we're, we're, we're executing people from a different era, some of whom would not even get the death penalty today, some of whom are in their 60s and 70s, with all kinds of health problems. And those people are being taken in by these correctional staff as part of their job and killed. And then those folks go home and tuck their kids in and get up the next day and come back to work. I mean, what is this doing to our, our, the, the folks who are asking to carry this out on our behalf? So you just see these ripples out there of what the people who are touching this thing have to live with. Um, the last thing I want to talk about is, is innocence. And we, in the film, I think it was 143 or something like that, we're now up to 186 individuals who have been released from death row when evidence of their innocence came to light, which means for every eight people we've executed, we've let somebody go. Um, and those are just the people that we found out in time. We are certain we've executed innocent people. Um, now, the state might not admit that, but, and I don't mean just here in Tennessee, I mean across the country, the numbers of people. And I want to tell you just a brief story about one individual. Um, he, he is not an exoneree, but he is somebody who I do believe is innocent. And his case had gotten a lot of attention, but I think what his case does, it sort of crystallizes a lot of the stuff that I'm talking about 
with why I feel like the system is so broken. And his name is Purvis Payne. And I don't know if any of you all followed his case at all. But Purvis was supposed to be executed here in December of 2020. Um, and he had been on death row for 30, at that time, 33 years. Um, for a brutal murder of a young mother and her two... He attacked, the, the crime was the mother was murdered and one of the children were murdered. The other child was, was stabbed brutally but survived. The children were like two and three. Um, they were white, Purvis is black, Shelby County. Purvis had been sentenced to death for uh, the, the two murders. On death row all that time. He had maintained his innocence since the day he was arrested. His family, you know, had been trying to get somebody to do something. Please help us, you know. He got a new attorney in 2018. And she just said something's not right. So she started really digging around. And she firmly believes he is innocent. Um, the story that Purvis, Purvis's story is, he was visiting his girlfriend in Memphis. It was actually in Millington, but it's Shelby County. He was 20 years old, 1987 maybe. Knocked on her door, she wasn't home, and I'm cutting the story down a little bit. Wasn't home. Across the hall, he hears sounds, moaning, groaning, sounds of distress. Now Purvis, what I didn't say, has an intellectual disability, okay, which which formerly we called mental retardation, and that's what the law still calls it, but it's intellectual disability, right? So he has intellectual and behavioral adaptation deficits, okay? So processing things is harder for Purvis. Um, but he'd always been taught to help people. He came from a, comes from a fine family. His father's a minister, um, grew up, loved, cared for, wonderful community, um, and never been in trouble, never arrested, no drug use, nothing. This young man hears this crying and this knocks, pushes the door open, and there is this young woman with a knife in her throat and her two little bitties bleeding. Purvis immediately tries to help. He pulls the knife out, which is Probably not the best thing to do. He tries to call 911. He can't remember 911. He dials 411, which was information in the 80s. He's panicking. He, his hat falls off. He's, you know, he's now got blood all over him, and he hears the police coming, sirens. And he realizes they're going to say, I did this. And he runs. Well, guess what happened? They caught him, and he was arrested. And no one was ever investigated besides him. His mother and daddy got to the police station as fast as they could. They begged the police, give our son a drug test. He doesn't do drugs. He's not on drugs. The police refused to drug test him. Then used drugs as the motive for the crime. Said he was hyped up on drugs and wanted to have sex with a white woman. That was the motive. And because she rebuffed him, he killed them. He tried to kill them all. Found guilty, sentenced to death. Um, and there, you know, there's an ex-husband that had been very violent. There's 
other things, you know, out there. This attorney found out there was like 12 pieces of evidence that had never been tested for DNA. She asked the state to test it. Of course, the state said, nope, we don't want to test it. We're not testing it. He's guilty. We're not doing it. And see, that's the thing people don't understand. Just because you have evidence that has DNA on it doesn't mean the state has to do anything with it. They've got their conviction. They don't have to do anything. So they fought. The judge came back and said, look, I'm going to consider testing these 12 pieces of evidence, and then we'll come back to court, and I'll let you know. One of these, now, we knew Purvis's DNA was on it. You know, he touched everything. So, I mean, but the woman fought her attacker, so there would have been skin under her fingernails, which they had, and said in court that they had in July of 2020 to the judge. When they came back in September for the judge to issue her ruling about the testing, the judge said, I would like all of this evidence tested. And the Shelby County District Attorney said, sorry, judge, we don't have those scrapings anymore. They, they're gone. Okay. No, no, nothing. No accountability for it, nothing. So the one piece of evidence that could have shown us who committed this crime disappeared from the evidence room. Nobody to this day knows where it is. Nobody's being held accountable. A man's life is on the line. And this is acceptable. What ultimately happened is we knew that was going to, you know, that was a dead end. I mean, there was unknown DNA on the knife, but it was too degraded because it was 30-something years old to test for a hit in the, in the database. So the judge said, sorry, you know, not enough. We work very hard, our organization, along with the disability community, to get a law passed here in 2021 that updated our law about intellectual disability, which was woefully out of date, and said if individuals who are currently on death row who have intellectual disability, which the U.S. Supreme Court has said means you don't get executed, and they've never been able to have that evidence listened to by the court, they should be able to get another a try. And that bill passed. Purvis got back into court, and in November of 2021, he was removed from death row after 34 years. Now, he's still in prison, can be paroled in five years. His family's still working, his lawyers are still working to try to find that evidence that might exonerate him. But that's, these are the kind of cases that we see over and over and over again. Um, last thing, I keep saying that, Donna. Last thing, last thing. Sorry, there's just so much. Um, I do want to tell y'all a little bit about, and then I'll, I really will let you ask questions, um, what's going on right now in Tennessee and then what some of the positives are. As you may know, we were supposed to execute five people this year. And I didn't really see a way it was going to be stopped. Um, COVID stopped Purvis's execution. Um, that's the only thing that stopped his execution. He would be dead otherwise, probably. Um, but we had five scheduled for this year. April 21st was the first one. A man who was 74 years old, oldest person on our death row, been there for 30-something years. One hour before he was to be executed, he was taking his last communion. 
the family of the victim was sitting in the room waiting, and they stopped it. Because our lethal injection, which the attorneys have been saying for years and years and years, the lethal injection protocol is very, very dangerous. The drugs do not work properly. The people being asked to do this are not medical. They're prison personnel. And this is a recipe for disaster, which suddenly we now know. And you may have been reading about it in the paper, just how bad it is and how messed up all of it is. And Governor Lee, we were so grateful, stepped up one hour before this man was to die and said, uh-uh, stop it. This is, you're not even following your own policies. <laughs> this is all, this is a mess. And we are going to have an independent investigation of this protocol, and it, we'll do it as long as it takes to figure out what's going on. So we now have a pause in Tennessee. And we are deeply grateful because it gives us more time to talk to people about why we don't need to move forward with executions. Um, public opinion just had a new poll out in Tennessee. Tennessee poll just about came out a few weeks ago. 53% of Tennesseans prefer life without parole. 37% prefer the death penalty. That is very consistent across the country. It's as high as 60%. That's a, a 180 from where we were polling back in the 90s. Public opinion has changed. We are barely sentencing anybody to death in Tennessee anymore. Juries aren't using it. We've had three new death sentences since 2013 in Tennessee, which tells me the public is changing, right? It tells me more and more prosecutors aren't pursuing it, right? So we have now have 23 states that have ended it. Virginia just did so in 2021. Ohio's getting close. Utah's getting close. Um, both blue states and red states are moving toward repeal. 34 states either don't have it on the books anymore or haven't used it in 10 years or have a moratorium on it. So all these indicators are, are moving us toward ending the death penalty in our state. But we have to be able to help our leaders, our lawmakers, understand that the public is ready to let this go. And once that happens, you know, we're, we're done. Um, so I'm going to stop because I want to make sure we have plenty of time. And, I, you know, I can talk more. But I, I want to make sure we have plenty of time for conversation. So questions, and I'm going I'm to pass around the little handout I have. And I'm going to pass around the, um, the sign-up sheets. I just have one pen, y'all. I'm sorry about that. I hope folks brought a pen. All right, well, yes, give it up for um, Reverend, Car uh, Reverend Rector here. Thank you. Thank you so much. Um, to, uh, Daniel here is going to help pass out stuff. As far as, um, I have two questions to kick off, and then I'm, I've got a mic, and I'll, we'll just pass the mic today if you have any Q&A. Um, since we don't have a, a bar going, I'm assuming we don't need bathroom breaks. But if you do, feel free. Um, you might miss something genius, but I'm, j I'm just saying. You, know, you never know. <laughs> Yeah, I have, a, I have a technical question, and I have a question related to the church. My technical question is, in all these examples, it's taken people who have been on death row for 20 and 30 years. And I, I, I just, out of ignorance, want to ask the question of why. Um, 
you know, thank God, because for some of them, it's resulted in them actually yeah. not being executed. Right. But why is the execute? Why, why does it take so long for that to happen? What's the, what am I missing there? Yeah. So that's a great question. So the death penalty is different. You know, the U.S. Supreme Court has said that. And there are safeguards. They're being, some of them are being taken away right now, but there are supposedly safeguards in the appeals process to try to ensure that innocent people aren't executed. Um, what we know, though, Matt, is that people who get charged with capital murder generally are poor. They can't afford their own attorneys. They get appointed attorneys. They get public defenders, some of whom are incredibly good lawyers, but they don't have resources. Many of them have huge caseloads. These are the most complicated cases. Um, so what we find is that those trials often there's much that is not discovered. There are things that don't get turned over. There's all sorts of stuff that goes on because you don't have attorneys that can really dig in. Move to the next level of appeal, you get new lawyers. Well, those lawyers start looking into all this stuff and they start finding all the problems, <laughs> which then leads to more appeals, right? And so it, you know, sometimes the state will ask, no, 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 we don't, we don't, we need more time. So it's a year or two. Then maybe the, in, the defense or the inmates attorneys, no, no, we need more time. Sometimes the court sits on things for a couple of years. So you just, it takes a long time. Um, and in Tennessee, you know, it has just been some, Virginia did it faster. They generally did it within about a 12 year period. Um, but here it's generally 30 years, you know, the last, and that's another thing. In the film, I said we'd had, I think that's what I said, six executions um, in Tennessee at the time that film was made. We've now had 13. Um, so, and all of these individuals were people sentenced in the 80s, you know, so great question. Well, the other thing you asked, you, you mentioned as far as statistics, as far as, 53% of Tennesseans now favor uh, parole, like life, with, life without parole, yeah. parole rather than the death penalty. You know, I, I am curious if there's any data. What, what, is, what is the data out there as far as, since this is Theology on Tap, on the church or, or, or even maybe even more specifically the evangelical church um, as far as support for or against the death penalty? Uh, does, it, does it map equal or like how much work do we have to do as the church here? Um, well, um, the church ain't great on this. <laughs> I'll just be honest. I mean, um, you know, I will say I see that shifting some, but there are, you know, denominations. Um, the Southern Baptist Church, for example, has a pro-death penalty position. Um, again, I think there's some shifting happening. Um, and I see the National Association of Evangelicals had a pro-death penalty position until 2015, and after a lot of work and a lot of conversation, changed that position to one of neutrality. Um, so there is shifting going on. Um, but um, Christians tend to be more supportive than anybody else of the death penalty. Yeah. I, mean, I just want to let that settle in. For yeah. Yeah. 
So uh, hypothetically, let's say we work to end the death penalty here in Tennessee. I have no idea what that looks like, mm -hmm. right? Is that, is that a signature from the governor? Is that, is that something that has to be passed by the House and the Senate in Tennessee and then the governor sign it? What, what does that actually look like to shift a policy as big as the death penalty here in the state of Tennessee? Yeah, another great question. So there's several things that could happen. The, the most, probably the most um, sustainable thing would be for the legislature to pass a repeal bill, repealing the death penalty that the governor could then sign or not sign and it would go into law. Um, now, there, there have been states that where Illinois, for example, where you had a governor, Governor Ryan, who after being confronted with the fact that they'd had 13 exonerations and 12 executions in Illinois, um, commuted everybody's sentence on the row. He just flat out, governors have the power to do that. Um, they don't use it very much, but they have the power that was part of the constitution of most states is that the governor is the ultimate check, you know, and that the governor really can be merciful at any time and that, that they, they didn't, he or she doesn't even need a reason, right? Um, the other is a judicial where the court could say, look, this system's got such problems, we will not allow, we will not allow dates to be set because the court sets the dates, until you fix some things. And we've seen that happen in Delaware and New York where they never, I don't think, and maybe Washington State too, where the courts basically just ended it by saying, unless you can fix all of these problems we're telling you are there, we're not gonna let this continue. But the most, I think the way it will happen here is legislative. And that's what we're working toward. Great, thank you. Um, any questions from the floor? She promises she'll be nice, people. Oh, good. Okay. Um, yeah, so I was really, I guess, well, number one, just like hearing the stats, I guess I assumed that Tennessee was, uh, yeah, Tennessee would um, have had more executions recently, so that was really promising to hear. Yeah. But um, I I came into here with this question. I'm still going to answer this. Uh, so, going to ask this question: um, How do you battle cynicism and like hopelessness? Because like on Twitter, it just like around I see like Shane Clearborn, Sister Helen, Helen. Pudging, mm -hmm. um, people within the church fighting tirelessly, even after one execu execution after another, even after. Yeah, after nothing stainless is going to steer their way. I just like, like, I know it's a lot. I know like this, it's different when you're in the front lines, but it's just, and I, I had a classmate um, in high school um, who interviewed and just with, with, with um, Troy Davis a lot. Oh. Yeah, um, got, uh, yeah, I, um, yeah. So just like, I guess like, how do you, f like, like obviously with like, by like wanting to see this end, but mm -hmm. like, in like a more short-term personal sense, like mm -hmm. how do you fight like, just like always like, it seems like sometimes like just like with the, the world and the news, in this case seems really projectful still. Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, it, it is hard. I mean, there's really hard days. Um, you know, certainly when there's an execution, you know, it's about the lowest you can be. Um, but, 
you know, I truly believe that God is at work and that this story is way bigger than me and, you know, that, that, that there is a work toward a day when we don't do this anymore and that I continue, that is my hope that I live into um, and that I put my faith in even on the dark days that God is at work. Um, and that I'm invited to be a part of that work, even though it's really, really hard sometimes. The other piece of that is really celebrating the, the little victories along the way. And like this thing with Purvis last year, that was the biggest thing we've ever been a part of, is getting a bill like that passed in our legislature, which was not easy, but it passed almost unanimously. It was incredible what happened, that they saw fit to say, People with intellectual disability shouldn't be executed. Um, and now we've got potentially about 12 men on our row right now who are going to be trying to get their sentences overturned. It's not the end of the death penalty, but Purvis Payne is not going to be executed now. You know, and when I saw his, it was one of the most moving things in my, my life, honestly. When he walked, they live streamed back in November when he, officially came into the courtroom in Shelby County for the judge to remove his death sentence. After 34 years, he was 20, y'all, when he went in there. His mama has died. His, one of his sisters has died. His mother, who every year said Purvis is coming home for Christmas this year, every year she said it. She didn't see it. When he walked into that courtroom and saw his attorney and bawled his eyes out, the, the weight of that on him, and, and seeing his family and, you know, that, like, that can keep me going for a long time. You know what I mean? Like, and you, you have to find those. And that was a pretty big victory, but there's small ones where somebody comes out and says, you know, somebody of influence comes out and says, I've decided I'm not for the death penalty anymore. That's a victory, you know? And so you, you, you really have to celebrate those small things to be able to keep moving forward. Great question. Hey, so first, thank you for coming. Oh, thank um, you. It was great to hear you, even though this is obviously a heavy topic. But so with that, there's organizations making change. There's people of influence that are working on this legislature. What are practical things that the average person in this room can do um, besides just voting? Yes, great question. Um, please get on our email list because, and I promise I don't overdo it, um, but get on that email list because we will let you know when there are actions to take, not just in Tennessee, but around the country, when there are events that are coming up, you know, that we need people to, to be a part of, you know, um, letter writing, petitions. Um, there's also, you know, we are always looking to talk to people. So if you're a part of a book club, if you're a part of Rotary, if you're, you know, anything that you're a part of where we... We could get you trained to talk, or we could talk, you know, just sharing the story, sharing the film, you know. Um, but, but that, I think it's critical for folks who do want to get active to get on our email list, because that's how you really are going to find out what's happening, when it's happening, when we need people to step up and really, you know, let our folks know in the legislature, the governor, where we are. Great question. Thank you. Shannon, did you? My know? question kind of piggybacks on her question, but we have a 
we're electing a new district attorney here in Hamilton County, just like most of our mm -hmm. friends across the state are going to be electing new district attorneys in August. So for those of us who take very seriously our vote counting for something, yes, what kind of characteristics or what kind of, what do we want to hear our district attorneys, these candidates say about the death penalty? Or maybe if we have an opportunity to go to a candidate's forum, what kind of questions do we need to be asking them to make sure that they're the right people to vote for? That's such a great question. And I'm doing a fact sheet as we speak about this very thing, Shannon. So if you sign up, I'll get this out to everybody. Because, yes, you're right. And it's super important. People, you know, often don't necessarily put as much weight on their local elections as maybe the presidential or whatever, but they're super important. In Tennessee, we have the longest tenure of DAs in the country, eight years. They're elected for eight years. And DAs are the people who decide. They, it is in their complete discretion to seek the death penalty or not, or to be heavily focused on locking people up, on transferring juveniles to adult court, um, on Nobel reform. And, you know, so there are things that we, you want to ask about how do you treat juveniles? What's that look like? You know, how long are people sitting, you know, in jail, not able to get out because they can't afford bail before they go to, you know, trial? Um, what's, what's happening with restorative justice? What's happening with um, um, investing in programs that help the community, help people go back into the community and get re-engaged as opposed to getting locked up? You know, these kind of things. Um, but that's, I'm so glad you asked that because I'm actually, you just sparked it because I was like, oh, I haven't gotten that back. Somebody was uh, editing it for me. But I'll have that and I will get that out um, to folks and, or put it on our website or let you know how to find that because it's really important to ask those questions. The DAs need to understand that the, that the punitive, overly punitive, incarceral, lock them up, throw away the key stuff is not working. <laughs> And the damage that's being done is perpetuating the very thing that we're trying to, to help because people are being taken out of their communities. People are being, you know, institutionalized and, and how, you know, particularly our kids, you know, and this is just not healing for anybody. Um, and our communities are being damaged because of it. And so we've got to figure this out. And there are people who have, are doing some really great, prosecutors who are doing some really great stuff around the country. Um, but we got to replicate that. Great question. Tim, do you have a question? Yeah, it's related. Um, the, the, uh, the conservative that was on there, yeah. I can't remember what his name was, but he, he had some, uh, I think, three really uh, strong cases. And, and also uh, the statement about conservatives typically, you know, supporting the death penalty. Yes. Um, it, although it doesn't really rise to an election issue, right? I mean, it doesn't really surface in that kind of way. Maybe sometimes, you know, federally, possibly, but you hardly ever hear about it, right. right? So in state elections in particular, like what is the strategy for turning this conversation into an election issue so that it can be discussed in public? If, if over half of the people are opposed to the death penalty in Tennessee, it seems to me like if it's an election issue, we may just very well get enough people in Nashville that could do something about it legislatively. Yeah, I mean, it, it's a tough one. Um, I think a lot of lawmakers in Tennessee, 
are worried about primaries. You know, is somebody going to come at me from the very far right who is going to make me look weak or soft, you know? Um, it's fascinating to me as someone who's up there and talking to people how many people do recognize it's broken, <laughs> you know, but kind of the way they're going to talk about that publicly is very different than they might talk about it, you know, in their offices one-on-one. -on -one. But to your point, what I think they have to hear, and this is kind of moving forward the way we're really going to approach it with the legislature, they have to hear from victims' family members. They have to hear from the people impacted who have lost loved ones to homicide, saying to them, this is failing us, right? It's not helping. And what they have to hear is what is working in communities to make communities safer. Because they need to be able to tell the people in their, in their um, districts, hey, this is what we could be doing that can make our community safer, right? And we can let this go. Um, so it's, it's one of those weird things because so many things in Tennessee poll well, <laughs> but yet the legislature won't go for it. You know what I mean? And so there's, there is this fear, and I think you're right. I think in their minds, a death penalty is still kind of what it was in the 90s, you know, when, when it was being used as a wedge issue and used against people in elections. It's not anymore. The public is not voting on the death penalty, you know, but there is still this fear about it. Um, so it, I think it's helping them hear from their people. Like, look, we could be doing this differently and we could be actually safer if we were doing it differently, right? But I think critically important, obviously their constituents are critically important, the people who vote in their districts, right? But I also think they've got to hear more from victims' family members um, because that tends to be the default. The minute you sort of try to sort of talk about it, well, we have to do it for the victims' families. We have to. Except they're, they don't all agree. And, and there's a lot of families that, that would support the death penalty but who say the current system is failing us. And if we can't, if we're not going to execute people in a... a timely way, we shouldn't do it at all. Like, we should just find other ways, right? And that seems to be fairly common, even for families that support the death penalty. You know, this poor family, like I said, who was there sitting in that room 30-something years waiting for this execution, and it gets called off one hour. I mean, what? how on earth is that in any way, shape, or form helpful to them, right? And so that's the kind of thing we have to help our lawmakers understand. Um, but we, we are hoping the polling is going to help us to some degree. Take some of that fear away. Any others? These are great questions. Anybody else? All right, Melanie. Um, so you've kind of talked about what the public can do and what politicians can do. I'm kind of wondering what corrections departments can do because they are the ones that interact with people on death row. We hear a lot of stories um, about people who've committed crimes. We hear a lot of stories about victims' families. Is there something... Last week, I heard, sitting in a prison, a story of a man 
who murdered somebody and that person's father ended up writing to him and mentoring him and like we have a restored relationship and he has closure but not everybody gets to hear those stories mm -hmm. and I'm wondering what is something corrections can do to help people see in a bigger way like the death penalty isn't working and honestly the way we're doing corrections isn't working. No, it's a great question. And I think the corrections voice is a critical one that we need to continue to get to expand. Because I think, again, people just assume all corrections folk would support the death penalty, right? Which really doesn't make sense if you're in the corrections. <laughs> you're correcting this behavior to hopefully help someone not behave that way anymore, right? Um, but I think for that voice, you know, the, the sort of the corrections groups or just individuals to, to share more about those kind of stories, to share more about we didn't, we didn't get into corrections to, execute, to say this person's beyond help or hope. You know what I mean? And I think really the impact of what we're asking corrections officers to do without proper pay um, and on all sorts of levels, right? But, but particularly around the death penalty, this is, you know, what are we asking these people to do and then to live with the consequences of that? Um, you know, and there's just story after story after story of people who have been so impacted, wardens and commissioners and people on the execution teams and, you know, who've, who've had to, you know, ended up like having breakdowns and having addiction issues and all sorts of things because of the trauma that they've experienced. And so I do think telling the story of why people do corrections and what the point of it is and sort of as we can lift up those stories like you just shared and, and just the fact that we shouldn't ask people to do this on behalf of the state. They shouldn't have to do it. Stacy, thank you so much for being here. Thank y'all. Guys, give it a round of applause. Appreciate um, Reverend Stacy will be here for a little while to answer any other questions maybe you have. Also, Tim, would you mind standing up real quick? Uh, if, if you're interested in prison ministry, whether it is uh, reforming prison ministry or reforming prisons and the death penalty, or actually just working with people coming out of prison, uh, Tim is a guy you want to know as well here in Chattanooga that has a ministry that we've worked with before. Uh, that I want to point out and highlight as well. So thank you all for being here. Thank you for being a part of Theology on Tap tonight. Hang around and uh, have a conversation. Thank you.